2: It's uh, the second time he has gone oh,
3: They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those
4: boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you?
5: Yes.
0: Good right.
3: luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap and first cap and whatever.
1: It's the Irish Times Second Captains Podcast. I'm David, Kira Murphy and Ken Erdie, all here for the first show of the week. Hi, how are you doing? I Hello there, everyone. A week that will build up nicely to Wales versus Ireland at the Millennium Stadium next Saturday. We're all getting taken along by the excitement of Ireland's quest for a, a grand slam. But today, Murph we spare a thought for poor Matt Williams. Having to get up in the middle of the night in in Sydney to watch Ireland play a style of rugby that goes against every fibre of his being. You can just picture his jaw dropping a little closer to the floor with every Conor Murray box kick, Mm. every Johnny Sexton up and under.
6: Well, you just, you feel a lot more emotionally involved in a sporting event that you've really had to struggle to see. And by struggle, I mean obviously either wait up or wait up for or get up very early for. You feel as if These pampered sports people, right, living in their little bubble, you know, uncaring to the rest of the, for the uh, as to the needs and wants of the wider world. They owe me. I'm here at five a.m. I've watched four of the worst boxing matches I've ever seen in my entire life. The main event better be amazing, or. there's going to be trouble. Yeah. I'm going to write a letter so to Floyd Mayweather. Not
1: enough for uh, for Matt Williams in these games. We've already kind of had this debate about the merits of the Six Nations as a whole and of how Ireland are playing in particular and whether there is any sort of duty to entertain teams. What we want to really focus on is it being World Cup year. How effective this game plan is going to be heading into the World Cup. Uh, or whatever game plan Ireland take on board because this is something that Matt feels quite strongly about he he, he doesn't think that he thinks it's been the worst uh, poor Six Nations one of the worst he's seen in a long time and within that Ireland are getting the right type of results but he's not sure if they're playing the right type in fact he thinks they're playing a type of rugby that is potentially damaging to their chances of winning a World Cup so that's the question that we're going to be posing to to Matt and to Jerry today can we go do we need to change tack here to go further than we've ever gone before in a World Cup, namely a semi-final? And final, we'll get to them in just a little while. Uh, there was an interesting story on the front page of this Sunday Independent yesterday by Jerome Riley about the referee in the dublin tyrone game on Saturday night. David Goff is his name. He's openly gay and wanted to wear a rainbow wristband during the game to highlight homophobia, he said, and equality in sport and also to offer support for the yes vote in the marriage referendum. Initially, it seems he was told that was grand, but later... He was ordered not to wear the wristband. The GA decided that this would have been a political gesture by David, and they say they are an apolitical association. So we're going to talk to the ref himself, David Goff, about all that today. And Ken, big news in the cycling world. Mm. I was shocked to read today, after the Independent Commission for Reform in Cycling's report, that Heinrich Bruggen is still involved in the UCI. I forget that Verbruggen never had to step down, despite all the land stuff, up, oh, land stuff up until now. He's never had to step down as honorary president of the UCI. Even Pat McQuaid fell on his sword, ultimately. But uh, but Verbruggen has gone stumbling on, uh, not for much longer, if Brian Cookson, the UCI president currently, yes. has his way. He wants him to step down for uh, because of a lot of the content of the report.
3: Yeah, Cookson says he's frankly appalled by some of the things that important. we will ask for Bruggen to consider. His position. Um, I mean, it seems as though for Bruggen, as uh, well, this report is saying anyway that for Bruggen was for a long time the kind of power behind Pat McQuaid's throne, mm. um, a very, uh, a very influential figure, and maybe the most influential figure at the UCI for um, for a very long time. Um, You know, they essentially have been cleared or or not found guilty of actually being bribed by Lance Armstrong to cover up a positive test at one point. But uh, the report is saying that the relationship between uh, Armstrong and the... uh, governing body was not healthy. I mean, this is not, this is not really new. No, and
1: a lot of, and in fairness, it's a two hundred and twenty odd page report, and all I've had a chance to read so far are the the bare headlines. So we're, we have to go on that for the time being. But the the uh, one of the things that, uh, and it's still worth it's still a worthwhile report, and it's worthwhile the UCI themselves fully uh, fully exploring this as hasn't been done in the past. But a lot of the a lot of the headlines I'm reading like this this crack around the um, the Vryman report. This is Emil Vrijman, a Dutch anti-doping specialist who conducted a report, an independent, supposedly independent report years back on Lance Armstrong and on doping for the, well, not for the UCI, supposedly he was independent and everybody has known for years. This is what was in Jeremy Whittle's book. It's been in other books. It's been in the, uh, I assume it was in the, uh, the Usada report that this was uh, this Fryman report was absolute nonsense. That he was well known well to be a friend of Verbruggen's, and that there was a huge amount of collusion going on there. This has been uh, confirmed here. It's clear the UCI never intended it to be fully independent. It, this is what Cookson says. It's clear Lance Armstrong's lawyers wrote large sections <laughs> of the Fryman report, and it's clear That's the UCI just lazy. Come the UCI on. was complicit. yeah don't just write. At least meet, meet up with the meet up with Fryman. just well, ask well, him.
6: Give me the spirit of what you. Yeah. Of what you'd like, and then we can transmit that, and then we'll there'll be a collaboration. But to just you know let them write the whole thing themselves, I mean, or large portions of it, I mean, that's just not
1: right. But there is a much bigger scandal, Ken, than anything Lance Armstrong
3: has to do with, huh. and it's emerged over the over the couple hundred pages. Uh, well, the report claims. You know what I'm talking about, Ken. The report claims that um, doping is now rampant in over 40s uh, amateur cycling. <laughs> <laughs> the, it's just that there are middle-aged businessmen out there winning these amateur uh, bike races on EPO, <laughs> which is just—I shouldn't laugh. It's—it's it's insane. Oh, it is funny. I mean, you've got to—you've got to say that's funny. That's—that is the definition
1: of a midlife crisis. Whatever we're getting into here, like, or getting on the bike. But to then dope yourselves to the eyeballs yeah. so that you can beat some other over 40s to yeah. this amateur race well, is look, that's the, insane.
3: That's the cesspool that you're confronted with in under 40s, in over 40 cycling. It's either, you know, accept that you have to dope or accept that you can't compete. You know, I that's, know, I, that's I, I, the if, choice that these, these athletes are being forced to make. The lose-lose situation they're being forced to confront. I want
6: future generations of over 40s, middle-aged amateur bike riders to not have to make that choice.
3: Yeah, well, that's that's, that's the, the tonic of truth can flow over this great sport of over forties bike racing, and maybe we could, we could also be taking drugs. I mean, it's it's really interesting. How expensive interesting, would actually.
6: it be? How expensive would it be to be a middle aged businessman on EPO? Well, I mean, what sort of, a, of money are you pouring into win these amateur? Bike not as bikes?
3: expensive as as all your uh, as all your racing gear. I imagine. I Imagine you are talking about some top of the line bikes. Mm. You know what I mean? You are talking about guys who have all the equipment because it does suggest something interesting about the motivation for doing it. I mean, you would think. Uh, at that stage of life, you're probably, you know, notwithstanding advances in gene therapy and so on. You're probably past your prime athletic years. <laughs> it's, it's not really supposed to be about pushing back the limits of human endeavor once you get into the pot-bellied, yet still lycra-clad, over-40s uh, bike racing circuit. Uh, so why are you doing it? You would, you would think people do it because they enjoy it it's fun or because they they want to keep fit you know they want to be healthy sometimes a little too healthy sometimes annoyingly healthy you know you know the the kind of person um you would think that was the motivation for doing it but it turns out actually the motivation for doing it is to imitate their heroes oh yeah that's actually the main it's the kind of this mimetic impulse to be like you know, Lance Armstrong. Oh, but
1: you're every year ahead of the Tour de France, amateurs, anybody, you could go over and cycle one of the stages of the Tour de France as sort of a, 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 a glimpse into this world that your heroes yeah. live.
3: I mean, I, I, which, I can I can, I can can understand why someone would want to do that. I mean, I'd, I'd quite like to do that even at some point, you know, get a sense of, okay, just how, how difficult is this? You know what I mean? For, I mean, even if I did manage to complete a stage of the Tour de France, it still doesn't really tell me much about what it's like for a top, Athlete to do that. You know, they're two very different experiences.
6: Tells you something though.
3: It it, it would tell you something. I I can understand that. But the idea of actually taking drugs as well to win an over (laughs) 40s bike race is insane. And it and it just shows that actually these guys, it's not just kids who are actually who 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 kind of are, you know, just slavishly follow, you know, like little ducks in a row following the the mother duck who is their Roma. You're talking about like grown adults who Evidently, are doing doing it for the same reason. I want to be a little mini Lance Armstrong. Yeah, I find that a, a quite the same an interesting guys who, insight.
6: Yeah, they're the same guys who cheated golf, though. You know, and uh,
3: and I mean, that- cheating at golf is different. Cheating at golf is is different. Cheating at golf doesn't involve drugging yourself. Well, you there's know, this the is, element of danger. This is also. dangerous. You know, you're talking about pushing a forty something body to the extremes of its uh, cardiac endurance with the with the help of with the help of uh, you know performance enhancing drugs Or maybe that's not safe whereas yeah. you know shunting a golf ball out of the rough might be dishonest but it's it's, it's not, not unhealthy it, it, I mean it's morally unhealthy but you know physically it probably doesn't make much difference
1: Lance Armstrong has Lance Armstrong joined the over 40s club yet? What age is Lance
3: Armstrong? We'll have a uh, think about that. Yeah. <laughs> think about that he, off air, maybe. Uh, yeah, he, 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 he has. But he'll he?
1: still want to come. He you know, Lance, I'm sure, still wants He's to come comfortably back here. over 40. And Lance has cooperated with this, with this um, uh, commission, CIRC. Uh, 40, is 43. They're always well into his 40s. What am I talking about? Uh, so Lance, I'm, I assume, thinks maybe by... Cooperating and might ultimately increase his chances of getting a, a bit of leniency at some point. From his, yeah, he has lifespan. a statement out. Actually,
3: Do you wanna, yeah, yeah. I uh, read his statement. Um, the, there's a statement on his website. Uh, four and a half lines from him, and then eight lines, nine lines from his lawyer. Uh, he says, "I am grateful to, let's call them, Cirque for seeking the truth and allowing me to assist in that search. I am deeply sorry." for many things I have done. However, it is my hope that revealing the truth will lead to a bright, dope-free future for the sport I love and will allow all young riders emerging from small towns throughout the world in years to come, specifically small towns, uh, to chase their dreams without having to face the lose-lose choices that so many of my friends, teammates, and opponents face. I hope all riders who competed and doped can feel free to come forward and help the tonic of truth heal this great sport. (laughs) The tonic of truth, I love that. The tonic... uh, I
6: thought that was uh, just some... Good old Ken Early bombast, but it turns out that's from Lance Armstrong, so that's good. That's actually the phrase
3: he went with. Um, Elliot Peters, Lance Armstrong's attorney, adds, Lance Armstrong cooperated fully with CIRC. He met in person for two full days with CIRC senior investigators, including Peter Nicholson and Ulrich Haas, answered every question they asked without any restrictions, agreed to meet again if they wanted, and provided all documents requested to which he had access. Lance's sole interest in doing so was to facilitate the emergence of the truth about cycling. While Lance has borne the brunt of anti-doping enforcement efforts and attendant negative publicity and consequences, the truth is that the sport he encountered in Europe in the 1990s was a cesspool where doctors, coaches and riders participated daily in doping and covering up doping. Young riders and elite teams competing in Europe faced a simple choice, dope and lie about it or accept that you could not compete clean. We applaud CIRC for taking a courageous and unvarnished look at the truth and the rush to vilify Lance. Many of the other equally culpable participants have been allowed to escape scrutiny, much less sanction, and many of the anti-doping enforcers have chosen to grandstand at Lance's expense rather than truly search for the truth. So, poor Lance, I think, <laughs> is the is the message of that. I mean, he did bear the brunt of the enforcement efforts and that his, his punishment has been more severe than anyone else. On the other hand, he did spend a lot of time flying around in a private jet I would say more time than all of the other riders. I mean, you could say he risked big, he won big, and then he lost big. We'll get into the rugby now. Simon has
1: popped over, Simon. Hi, yeah. And Jerry Thornley is in studio with us, Jerry. Good morning. We're also joined from Sydney by Matt Williams for the first time during the Six Nations. Matt, you're keeping well.
5: Yeah, real good. Nice to talk to you again and uh, all the boys there.
1: We're all pretty excited about our 10 wins in a row and we're, we're ramping up for an assault on the World Cup. And I think you're here to tell us to, to get real, Matt.
5: <laughs> oh, look, not, not, not exactly. I mean, I'm i delighted Ireland is doing well and and I truly believe Ireland uh, have a great opportunity for the, the looming World Cup. I really believe that. It was only uh, Matt Burke... Uh, the great Australian fullback wrote uh, a similar thing in the uh, in the Australian papers over the weekend. Uh, I'm just finding the the rugby that or the type of rugby they're playing is is probably not helping them towards that end doesn't mean they're not going to perform, but uh, it's certainly not assisting them in that process.
1: Why not, Matt? uh, we don't want to talk about it. There has been a bit of a debate over here about a a sort of an entertainment value and a duty to entertain a crowd at a game. But I kind of want to steer clear of that and talk more specifically about what you said there, that you think the style actually isn't helping their their chances of winning the games in the World Cup. Why do you think that is?
5: Well, I think if if I give you an example, uh, Scotland are actually playing a really good style of rugby. If, if, you, if you just take all the emotion out and watch what Scotland are doing, it's great. They just simply don't have the talent to win. Um, and, and Vern Cotter, I was just having a laugh, He's probably had a night like I had when I first got there. You just sit there one night and go, I can't win this because we haven't got enough good players. And that, that's the problem. Ireland do. Ireland have a lot of good players and the systems that they're playing are winning. They're just inarguable. But will they beat South Africa, Australia and more importantly, New Zealand? And that's what you've got to play. You've got to play a game that can beat them. And we've seen Ireland go so close uh, last, uh, you know, in, in, at uh, the Aviva there when they could have won. And the way they won and the only way to play in New Zealand is you have to attack them. You can't beat the Southern Hemisphere teams rope doping And I just think that the tactics that Ireland are using, even though they're successful uh, in, in currently in the in, – in, especially in the Six Nations – are not going to work in the World Cup. That's that's different. And and the, the the ability just to say I'm going to switch it on and switch it off, you can't do that. You have to have practice at it. Even though they now, beat South, South
1: Africa South, and they beat South Africa and Australia in the November internationals last year.
5: Yeah, I mean, and and you've got to say that's uh, that's huge bonus and huge credit to Ireland. I think, and I said it'd be re- recognised when they beat South Africa, one of Ireland's greatest wins, and I think it was. But I do think the World Cup is different. The World Cup, you're going to uh, – people have a different mindset. The, those games are friendly games. There's players left behind back in, uh, uh, in South Africa and Australia. There's all those things. The World Cup is a different process. The, the, uh, the process is much more even for both sides. But I also have to say to you that you have to give Ireland credit. They have beaten Australia and they have beaten South Africa. That's why going backwards into this style of play – is so disappointing for me and so confusing.
0: Jerry. what do you think? It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a very interesting debate. Um, I'm not so sure that Ireland have gone backwards so much as um, just they've played what they've seen in front of them to a degree. I think that uh, if Northern Hemisphere referees are not going to apply the hindmost foot off sideline and um, it's almost impossible to penetrate a defence like England and France are flooding the breakdown and giving away penalties then Johnny Sexton has to kick them and that's what he did. He kicked six penalties because that's the way France went and played the breakdown and Ireland couldn't build any momentum. So there's a degree. I think Ireland have wanted to play more expansively than they've done thus far but they've just played what they've seen in front of them particularly through Saxon and Murray. They've got the best kicking out half-backs possibly in the world rugby at the moment. And they've got um, four full-backs across the three-quarter line, another one at full-back. And just to be sure, two more in the bench. I don't think anybody's ever taken the pitch or match squad and match a squad in Test Rugby with seven backs who've all played full-back. And it is a skill of this team. It's, it's a brilliant team in the air and they've played to their strengths. Um, whether it would be enough to beat New Zealand or South Africa Australia in the World Cup, maybe, maybe not. I take Matt's point entirely that Um, Ireland should have beaten South Africa and Australia at home to entertain any credibility coming into a World Cup they were winnable matches and they almost had to win them to not win them would have left them um, with a real mental baggage going into the World Cup instead they're building up a good body of work that will give them a lot of mental belief and they did come within a play of being the All Blacks and I would like to see them go back to more of that type of rugby and I think it's still in them but you know in a sense, we, myself and Simon we're talking off air and we live in a little bit of a bubble up here and this is the most conservative window in the Northern Hemisphere um, season is the Six Nations. At the moment, they're in the middle of super rugby with no relegation, no promotion, good conditions, referees who allow much more of a liberal game, who apply the offside law as well and not such an emphasis on using the set piece to score three points and so forth. And you're getting a different brand of rugby entirely. When it comes to World Cup, yes, everybody's locked and fully loaded but it also comes to knockout matches and history has shown us that if you look back to 07 um, New Zealand, um, South Africa and Australia all put three Six Nations sides to sword in the sword in the pool stages come the World Cup quarterfinals, finals knockout rugby um, France beat the All Blacks in Cardiff and uh, England beat Australia in Marseille and look back at the last World Cup Ireland beat Australia in Eden Park, and OK, um, there weren't that many Northern Hemisphere Southern Hemisphere collisions, but ultimately, a lousy French side came within a point to beat New Zealand in the final. So what I'm saying is, when it comes to knockout rugby, that's a different mindset as well.
1: Yeah, mindset and mental belief are two phrases that Jerry used there, Matty. Should we be focusing as much on that as the type of rugby they're playing, that Ireland are building themselves into something of a machine now, regardless of, of how entertaining they've been while doing it?
5: Yeah. I, I, again, you know, I would uh, I, I would split split the argument there. Um, it is not entertaining in any way, and and we just got to accept that. The, and and I'm I'm against it. I'm I'm one of those people. You know, the game's meant to be played a certain way, and I'm finding the rugby. In the, that I'm seeing on the Six Nations this year is, is the worst I can remember. And I, I'm trying I'm, – I really sat down there and like I said, come on, William, stop being negative. Try and find – when's the last time you saw something as bad as this? And, you know, you're drumming my fingers and I can't quite tell you when. It's, it's just horrid. And I don't believe is also using the talent that, that is available. Is it efficient and is it, is it winning? Well, obviously It is. But when you go through some of the, st- the stats, and I got some stick for doing it. though, I did an article in the, in the Times the other day. But, you know, the, the stat only had 900 words. You could get 1,500 words and say that apart from the, uh, the scrummaging against England, which improved markedly because Ireland got the ball out of those scrums, that they have not attempted to get the ball out of scrums. They actually used the scrum for a penalty, as a strategy for an exit set. So you get the penalty, then you kick for touch, then you have a line-out. So you're using the scrum and your kick, and then the, the restart is really the line-out. I mean, it's just an appalling way to play. But will that beat South Africa? No, it won't because they're great scrummages. Australia? Yeah, they're pretty ordinary scrummages. Will it beat uh, New Zealand? Absolutely not. It won't do it. So you've got to, you know, the, the biggest plus Australia has or ever has is we play New Zealand every year. So you're constantly thinking, how are we going to boot them? How are we going to boot them? And it makes you a better uh, nation, a better team. And Australia's won two World Cups when we should never have won one. But Matt, are we you making this... Uh,
1: sorry to cut across, but are, you, are we almost assuming here too much of a lack of flexibility in Joe Schmidt's mind here? In his head, is he not? Is it not that he's playing England at the moment, he's playing Wales at the moment. And when it comes to these other teams, he'll have a, he'll have a different tactical plan in the World Cup, allied to a belief... Among his players, in him, based on the fact that whatever plan he's been put, put, out, put out there against whatever opposition, they seem to win the games.
5: Yeah, look, you just got to be really careful. You don't do exactly what you're saying and put so much belief that that's you know you're putting a your coach up on a pedestal that's that's on sainthood because that's not reality, mate. New Zealanders don't buy that, and and it's quite frankly neither do Australians or South Africans, and nor should the Irish. It's an exceptionally good side. We've had this debate before where, where we went into a World Cup. You know, Eddie O'Sullivan in 2004, uh, was in France 2007? You know, this debate, while oh, we're going to go well, we're going to go great. And all of a sudden they hit the World Cup and they came an absolute cropper because the opposite teams were playing exactly this style of rugby to them. We remember Argentina bombing, bombing France and bombing uh, uh, Ireland. Ireland are capable of much more and they should be playing different uh, uh playing the ball in hand much better and that's my point there, there's their aspects of the game are magnificent and the kicking game from the halves is absolutely magnificent but it is monster rugby and at a certain point in the world cup that is not going to win it for you you're going to have to take the ball forward ball in hand that is just the way because good teams will stop their all and you saw england have woken up to the walk away line out they kept the ball in the first man, they didn't hand it back, so the walk away line out didn't uh, of them all didn't work. Somewhere along the line they're gonna to have to run. And you can't not do it for ten games in a row and then say we're gonna do it and expect it to be successful.
2: Muddy, maybe more than any other coach Ireland's ever had, Joe Schmidt is obsessed with the next game, with the small picture rather than the big big picture. The players keep repeating this to us. Um, And there seems to be a little bit of a trend that in the Six Nations, and maybe it's because of the weather and maybe it's because of the emotion, the occasion, that they're playing more conservatively than they do in the November internationals and maybe even during the summer. And, for example, even that New Zealand performance, um, the Irish performance against New Zealand... um, um, Joe saw that as a bit of a one-off, you know, he, he knew the team could just go out there and try something completely different and just see if you can beat New Zealand for the first time in your history. So it does seem as though he's prepared to change depending on the weather, depending on the opposition, depending on the time of year. Um, but just on the bigger picture of, of the six nations taking away from Ireland a little bit, do you think as a tournament, it maybe damages the Northern Hemisphere teams? Because ultimately we still just have England as the only winners of the World Cup from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but because of the weather, because of the time of the year it's played at, because there's so much about tradition and old gripes and huge numbers of away fans coming to Lansdowne Road and the Millennium Stadium or wherever it might be, whereas in in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, there's far less away fans. Um, say with Argentina coming into it, there's less of that history to it. It's it's pure and it's more about the rugby and maybe that sets up those teams better when it comes around to a World Cup.
5: Solomon always uh, on Twitter I got sent some magnificent clips of French rugby through the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s of these unbelievable tries. When they're on the road, uh, one of them was at the old Lansdowne Road uh, and was started by the current coach, Philip St-Andre. And the magnificence of the rugby that they played was breathtaking. And so I don't, I don't buy uh, – I'm, I'm not being disrespectful, but – Oh, I think there has been some glorious rugby in the Six Nations in the past. I think it's one of the greatest. I mean, it is the greatest tournament in the world. You guys have heard me say that before, um, with the exception of the World Cup. Oh, I love it. I love the history. I love everything about the Calcutta Cup. We were brought up on it. It's magnificent. What what the Six Nations represents. And I think it's the exact opposite. There should be an opportunity to play some great rugby. And, and I, when I was coaching in it, I saw some great rugby. I was the victim of some fabulous French rugby, the victim of some great Irish rugby. And you think how that Irish team played when Eddie O'Sullivan was coaching. It was magnificent games. The way they played at Twickenham, some of those great tries from Shane Horgan and, and uh, uh, Dennis Hickey and Gervie Dempsey and the boys. It was just absolutely beautiful rugby. So there's no, uh, I think falling back to those arguments is what I'm finding, the stick I get from from the Irish community now is when I say, look, I don't think it's very good. Everyone's having a go at me because they're winning. So here is, is, you've got to come down and start saying, is what it about, is it winning the Six Nations, is that what it's about? And if it is, then you're on the right track. But as I argued in a, a Scottish committee meeting, you, Not the best side has not won the World Cup Sorry, the best side has not won the World Cup Except twice, that's the two times New Zealand have won it If you can win a quarterfinal You can win the World Cup So your whole effort should be about winning the quarterfinal If you win that quarterfinal You are in with it And Australia's done it twice And they've won it And they were not the best team in the competition On either occasion Ireland have to focus and say, is what we are doing, is our game plan, is our play, is the skill set and our competencies we're equipping our players with going to win us that quarter final. And my analysis is it's not. And if it's not, then I think they're off track.
2: Jerry, I think it's great getting Matty's perspective because Mm -hmm. he's so far away. He's watching it. Um, He's got the passion of an Irishman. He's watching with the same intensity that we might do, but he's got that distance. So it's a really interesting perspective. And it's interesting because over here, maybe there's a feeling that the players aren't the most talented we've ever had and that we're doing the best we can do with them because of Schmidt. Where Matty's nearly the opposite, where he's saying, look, it's nearly like Jack Charlton's time. We have this amazing generation Mm -hmm. and we're doing brilliantly, but we could do even more.
0: Yeah, but then again, we've, this is the first time in 16 seasons that Ireland have gone into any campaign without Gordon Darcy and Brian O'Driscoll, in effect. So it's a brand new midfield. Um, you look at the team that saw out the win against England, as I've said before, it was Geordie Murphy, Tommy O'Donnell, uh, Ian Madigan, Robbie Henshaw and Felix Jones, in for the likes of Heaslip, O'Brien, um, Sexton, Darcy and O'Driscoll. I mean, a year ago, that would have been beyond belief that an Irish team with that kind of makeup could have seen out a home win against England by two clear scores. I think that they are, I think that we, I go back to what I said at the start, they are building up a huge amount of mental belief in themselves and if you're going to just take it, say, just take it as Matt's argument to win a quarter final, right, okay, Ireland know they're in the same pool as France initially, they're have now gone they now going to go into a World Cup with back-to-back wins over France, which they've never done before, France have been the biggest bugbear, nemesis, whatever, Betnoir, whatever you want to call it, in Irish psyches, going back throughout the professional era and beyond. And they're not going to have that on their. They're not going to be. They're not going to have that monkey on their backs when they meet the French in the World Cup in the pool stages. Nor they're going to have it against Italy. So they've every chance. Particularly, I think what France do over the next two weekends is very interesting. I think France are actually central to what Matty and we're, all, we're having this debate about. In previous World Cups, yes, the All Blacks have always been the best side going into it every time, and they have only won it twice. And the first time since the inaugural competition was last time around, and they barely won it. And they barely stumbled over the line. So they always have baggage going into a World Cup, but they are always the best team. Twice they slipped up. I was lucky to be there in Twickenham in 1999 and in Cardiff in 2007, without a shadow of a doubt, the best two rugby matches I've ever seen in my life, not involving an Irish side, and possibly the best two I've ever seen anyway. But, um, and France were inspired and played an inspired brand of rugby out of fear, Buster Douglas syndrome, whatever you want to call it. They just played magnificent rugby both times and came back from the dead in Twickenham and played outstandingly well in in Cardiff um, with a brand remodeled team, just a one-off performance, which France, Historically, have always been capable of, but if you look through recent years, particularly under Sant Andre's watch, even less so, more, less so under him than the, under Leveymon, they they don't have one-off performance in them because they're just not playing that brand of rugby. Apart from Claremont and maybe Bordeaux, it's not being played in the top 14, and therein lies the big problem with the Six Nations and how standards have dipped. Because the French are so poor. For the fourth season in a row under Saint-André, they they're going to finish in the bottom half of the table. It's actually unthinkable. and Never mind the brand of rugby, the plane, which seems utterly guileless and clueless and no sense of structure or what they're doing with themselves on the pitch. And for 10 minutes against Wales, they're just like, to hell with the game plan. Let's just go for it. And, and, and they're going to finish in the bottom half again. And actually, the fact what they do over the next two weekends is really interesting from an Irish point of view because a lot of good French observers want France to really slip up, lose to Italy, get thrashed by England so they can finally rid themselves of this coaching regime whereas we in Ireland should be praying for Irish victory, French victories so they arrive at the World Cup with Sant André still intact and therefore what I'm saying is the, the European hand is weakened because France are at the lowest they have maybe ever going into World Cup, but that's good for Ireland it gives Ireland a better chance of winning a pool, getting Argentina in the quarterfinal and therefore making a the semi-final. Matt can I just take you back to that point because I was struck by that
1: as well. you reckon that uh, there's a bit of a sainthood been bestowed upon Joe Schmidt over here uh, but nobody's buying that you said in South Africa or, or Australia uh, sorry in New Zealand or Australia. It's, um, is, he not, is he not getting any sort of dues at all?
5: Oh, he is, but uh, you know, I certainly hope if I go back to coaching, you blokes defend me the same way you defend Joe. I'd love it. Jesus, be fantastic, you know. And, and uh, you know, Ian Ireland, Joe can do no wrong. And look, this sounds like that's because he keeps winning I'm every not, game. Not, he's never to, failed. I'm, I'm supportive of Joe. He's, yeah, he wins every, he's fantastic. In every game. But he is You listen to what's been said to me. He's beyond criticism, and I believe that in the Irish media and the, there is very few criticisms of Joe, and 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 nor should they be because they're winning all the games. But if you do bring up a criticism like I have done, people are attacking me for it, and I don't, it doesn't worry me. I couldn't care less. You know, I just go to bed at night. I'm not worried about it because I'm not attacking Joe. I think he's a fabulous coach. I think he's a fabulous coach. I think he's the best coach in the world at the moment. I think he's brilliant. But it doesn't mean that he can't be off track. You know, unless you go Clive Woodward's famous comment just just because everyone else in the world thinks I'm wrong doesn't mean I am you know, that was Clive's statement of intent and we're doing the same and I just think that that even though international rugby is different to club rugby and, and so on the, the standard and the styles that are being coached by Joe in this case aren't going to help him in the long run they are very good short termers but I think you've got to take a bigger picture than that and and that is my point because if, if you come back again to what Jerry's point is, the short termism of French rugby has finished it, and I've been a, I'm a passionate lover of French rugby and I've just come to the conclusion that in the in the next medium term five years French rugby is in a lot of trouble if not if not uh, irrelevant. They they are getting what they deserve because their view of a their national team and their national competition has been short term, and Ireland haven't done that. We've got a long term view of of the clubs. But France hasn't. See, the, the top 14, the the people, that are popular in the top 14 is killing French rugby. But not only that, they will not bring in outside technical support. Ireland has had Australians, they've had New Zealanders with Joe, and they're bringing in these fresh new ideas. You watch France play, and it is guileless. It is. It is. There is no structure there. I keep looking. At what are they doing? They have nothing, and they'll, they'll. They won't. I'm. I'm. afraid. I've got to say to Jerry that I agree with everything he said, but I think France will lose. Or, or beat Italy just because they have absolutely no structure. And San André, who is a legend, is copying it, and so he should. But then you've got to say, are they going to be anything in the World Cup? No, but Ireland can. Ireland can be something in this World Cup. And it doesn't happen all the time. Australia won't do much at this World Cup. They'll make up the numbers. So when you get a group of guys and you look at it and say, hang on a minute, we can do a bit here. We've got a good pool. You'd be happy to get France in your pool. I'd love to get them in my pool. England England and Wales is a much harder pool for Australia than what Ireland have got. So you can finish top of your pool. Get Finish top of your pool, dodge the big teams, and you've got a great shot at this. And it doesn't come around every week. It doesn't come around every World Cup. might be 30 years, so don't blow it. And my argument is the tactics we're playing are putting that at jeopardy.
1: Okay. In the short term, uh, with all that said, I want to go very short term and ask about this weekend briefly, Jerry. What do you think? Uh, Are you confident with Ireland's chances?
0: Uh, reasonably confident yeah reasonably confident I do think that Wales will have done their homework in Ireland and that Gatlin Edwards and Howley um, are smart coaching ticket and will have analysed Ireland more so certainly than France did and maybe even more so than England did I do think Ireland might have to this would be more of a struggle I actually think it could be quite an open game there could be a few tries historically Wales-Ireland have always been much more entertaining games than England-Ireland and even France-Ireland over in recent times they've tended to be you know trench warfare so this could be a, quite a quite a relatively high scoring fluid game and I'm taking Ireland I just think they have a bit of momentum Going about them, but I wouldn't be investigating the mortgage on it or anything like that. But I do. I'd be reasonably confident if Sexton plays. That obviously is the key if Sexton plays. Matt.
5: Yeah, yeah Sexton. Sexton's the best eight in the world, out half in the world at the moment. I'd uh, I'd agree with Jerry. I, I, I think it's going to be very close. You know, you go back to when go drop that goal for the Grand Slam. It's going to be as tight as that. But I think the big advantage is uh, we know how Wales are going to play. We, we Ireland know exactly how. Going to Play they won't change the play the same way, and Wales still they don't they won't like what Ireland bring to them they find Ireland difficult and the Welsh players have been saying that the last couple of weeks it's it's a difficult game for the Welsh I, I think uh, I, I'd be confident Ireland can win but you know not uh, as a selector I wouldn't be putting the house on it but we're not going over there real underdogs we're going over there to win
1: Matt Williams Jerry Thorley, and Simon thanks a million cheers.
6: In the final and on and
0: again. And okay. the
6: Oh, what about that? Send him off.
4: Send him to. Okay.
5: Your side. Oh, it's oh, the, the best of the world. Never mind
1: else. Oh, it's good to get Matt Williams' perspective, in particular during the middle of a Six Nations, in which we're all glorifying in Ireland's results. Matt Williams, not so much more. But there is the question of, I know we've just had a nice long conversation about the World Cup but whether we should be obsessing so much at this time of the year if I start for you for example a Grand Slam right Yeah, we win the next two guys we beat Wales beat Scotland but tank at the World Cup I'm talking not even a quarter final we lose to France we lose to who else is in a group Scotland Italy Italy. why did I put Scotland in a group we lose to Italy and we go out in the first round would you accept that Uh,
6: would you take that if I offered well the embarrassment of following up a Grand Slam with the defeat to Italy and France and going out of the World Cup is, I think, too great a price for me to pay. But if you're asking me right now, what should we be focusing on? Well, that's not Grand what I asked Slam. you. I asked you. Well, the I've, first asked you, I've you the And you've answered it. <laughs> I answered the
1: question. <laughs> so don't so invent no, no, answers. No, I hate question. when you invent answers. Another, that
6: better, another question better question, which I'll then <laughs> answer.
1: <laughs> that is actually true. Anytime uh, a, a guest in on any show you listen to or watch says that. Yeah. If you're asking me either they just want to answer another question or they feel that the interviewer is not just not yeah, it's, it's like, oh, a poor
6: it's question I'll answer it but then I'll go on and try and say something interesting and rather rather than just accept the dead, the verbal dead end that you would offer uh, have offered up to me but I mean what w- we've won two grand slams why would we start focusing now on the world cup we need let's focus on the six nations always let's never pick a team well if I hear the phrase at the start of the 2016 six nations we need to start thinking about the 2019 World Cup. Yeah, It is, it is
1: a little different in World Cup year, in fairness. You do yeah. have to think a little bit about the World Cup, but as Simon says, Schmidt does... He certainly... The messages that he gives the players indicate that he's thinking one game at a time, uh, very short term. I'm not sure that that is the case. I'd say he's he's bright enough to have an overall plan for the for the year, but he certainly doesn't doesn't drill any of that plan into the players until the time has come, which is probably the right thing to do. There's no point having too much long-term information, which is irrelevant. It's not much good a player, certainly, thinking of what might happen. A New Zealand centre is not going to tackle the same way as a Wales centre, so let's worry about that. I think we have a bit more trust, I think, in Joe Schmidt than it seems they do in Australia and New Zealand.
6: It's weird. Stuart Barnes was on the show just a couple of weeks ago saying that uh, Ireland wouldn't unveil their real game plan for France in the Six Nations until... you know We we wouldn't... Sure hand against the French because we have them in the pool of the Rugby World Cup. I don't think that's happening. And if we had lost to France because and yet still had
1: these three brilliant players that we've decided to hold until the World Cup, I'd be pretty annoyed. The most important thing at this point is that France just win their last two games, keep Saint Andre in a job, and then hopefully we smack them in the World Cup. I think we can all agree on that. On uh, it's time now to scrape the barrel. I've got a call here that says you're the most boring predictable condescending interviewer around go back to
6: lecturing you have the charisma of a sick bow oh that's just it I just mentioned not you no me okay Ain't nobody with my click. we don't normally click. broadcast click. all the, the stuff click. that comes from scum click. around the country Ain't nobody than my click 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 click
5: click, click.
1: Today's scumbag is Brian Connolly, dear second captains. In recent weeks, I've tried my best to understand the world of cricket, he emails to us at second captains at irishtimes.com. In the same vein as the darts has in recent years taken over television sets in many an Irish household over the Christmas period I naively assume that this year the same would happen to cricket due to Ireland's story in the World Cup. I've watched countless YouTube videos and spoken to a sports journalist friend about the rules of cricket and the explanations always seem far too long winded and drawn out as those explaining it often deliver the information in complex terms with a sense of smugness due to the fact that they already understand the game. I hereby request an impromptu one-off podcast version of Challenge Murph where the man himself has to effectively explain the rules of of cricket in under 60 seconds perhaps if done successfully thousands of new second captains listeners will begin to follow the game and no doubt it'll go down in history it's a big day for Ireland please consider the gauntlet now to be officially dropped that is from Brian and it's good timing as well Brian because Ireland have since you sent this email indeed Ireland have beaten Zimbabwe in another nail biter the only types of games that Ireland play at Cricket World Cups and are now up against India tomorrow huge game for Ireland against India tomorrow Tuesday so why not put Murph on the clock Take your suggestion on board and give them 60 seconds. It would be an honour, on. Are you going to explain the rules of one day cricket?
6: One day cricket, which is the form of cricket that we will be playing tomorrow evening. Your 60 seconds starts now. A coin is tossed before play begins. The winner of that coin toss chooses to bat or to bowl first. So Ireland win the toss and they decide to put India in. So that means India bats first. Each team bats for 50 overs. so an over is made of made up of six balls bowled by an Irish player. There are wickets on either side of the pitch. That's the 22 yards of closely cut grass the bowler bowls on. And there's a batsman at each end. At the end of every over, the bowler changes and delivers to the batsman at the opposite end. The batsman stands in front of a wicket and tries to hit the ball to the side on. If it bounces before hitting the boundary, that's four runs. If it flies over the line without bouncing, it's six runs. They can also score single runs or two runs, three runs by running between the wickets. That's the batsman switching ends effectively. The bowler is trying to make the batsman make a mistake. So if the bowler hits the wicket with the ball, the batsman is out. So that's game over. Over for him. If the batsman hits a shot up in the air and the ball is caught by an Irish player before it bounces, the batsman is out. If the two batsmen attempt to run between the wickets after a shot but don't make it to the opposite end in time before an Irish player catches the ball and hits the wicket with a throw, he is also out. Twenty-second warning. The aim of the game is for Ireland, the bowling team, to take ten wickets, bringing the Indian innings to an end. If they can do that before the end of fifty overs, all the better. The aim of the batting team, the Indian team, is to score as many runs as possible in their fifty overs or before they lose all time of the wickets. At the end of their fifty overs, India scored three hundred and four runs. So for Ireland to win five the game, seconds. they must score three hundred and five runs in their fifty overs. Scoring less than that,
1: they lose. Simple. Done. So what's a uh, wicket?
6: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the wicket physically are the three sticks at the end with the two bales on top.
1: That's not What's bad a either. ball? No, that was good. You, it sounds you feel a bit quite more simple when you put it like that.
6: I think people get really confused when they hear commentators using phrases like silly mid-off and stuff like that. Cricket don't commentators don't make a that.
1: huge... It's on TV anyway. They don't make a huge amount, uh, a huge amount of effort to be inclusive. I know radio cricket commentary is a bit of a cult classic for people mm. and they tend to not t- talk too much about the cricket, to be honest. They'll talk about just about everything else. But the, the specific cricket type commentary, I don't think they're... Uh, it's not like you have to know everything as in no, any absolutely other sport, not. but I don't think the commentator... The commentator will talk to uh, a viewer as though they have a bit of a clue of what's going on, which I think is probably what you want. You yeah, want you do. And I think uh, I think there's if you can apply a filter whereby you know the words
6: that you need to... Understand the meaning of, and then there's loads of other stuff that you don't really need to understand, like the positions of various fielders on the field. I I don't know, I actually I I don't know like the most of what that actually means, but it doesn't matter to your understanding yeah. of the game. All you have to do is know that h- how how you score and how you win the game, and basically if you have those basic building blocks, which I've given you in the form of a 60 second radio essay, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, then how I many think,
1: words is up by the way? Uh, three
6: hundred and sixty three words. Hmm, six
1: words per second is good. Like every other sport, it's not really about the sport, though, is it? I mean, cycling is cycling, but Lance Armstrong is Lance Armstrong. You take my point, Ken. I'm, 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 I didn't follow your point. Well, sport is about the personalities that play it, the storylines around it, not so much what the rules are. Yeah. And there, there are, the cycling rules are very straightforward. R- really, you just cycle to the other I end. And yeah, so so uh, It's so difficult to, keep. difficult to No, but I, I listened to uh, a BBC podcast on Sachin Tendulkar recently. He brought out his book last year, the great Indian cricketer, one of the greatest cricketers of all time. And the argument being I made, I have number
6: three
1: Owen. Well, the argument like, being made in the podcast is that this guy, in terms of impact on his own country is possibly the biggest sports person ever. Now, I think maybe Muhammad Ali and a few others would have something to say about that. But apparently, Michael Vaughan said he used to play matches, especially in Mumbai, where, uh, where Tendulkar is from. He'd be playing a test match and Tendulkar would be coming out fourth to bat, right? So the stands would be empty when the match started. Then the first batsman has, has got out, the second batsman has got out, and you notice people, not just strictly flooding in, word literally going around outside that Tendulkar is about to come up to bat. Oftentimes, there was a cheer would go up from the home fans when their one of their opening weekend. order batsmen yeah. went down, yeah. which is just insane. It's uh, you know whatever many people live in Mumbai. The other story was that apparently Tendulkar goes out driving in his Ferrari at like four in the morning or something like that. It's the only time he can leave his place with any semblance <laughs> of something that approaches a piece.
3: In sounds like uh, Robbie Keane in L.A. <laughs>
1: you think he's getting swamped well, to that extent? <laughs> Oh, you did see Robbie Keane's goal, though, did you? Oh,
3: him? did I? Of course, I saw it. Oh. Do you know what was
1: more what I found more entertaining than his goal? Well, the other part of the vine that pop, popped across was uh, the other vine popped across was him having a chance. What would have been an open goal chance, but his teammate pushed it about a foot too far. Yeah. So Keane couldn't reach it. Now I actually thought it was a little bit like Gaza in Euro '96, failing to reach that cross yeah. against Germany. He probably should have got there. Yeah. But Keane didn't feel feel that. Kicked the posts as hard as he could, looking at to break his foot, and then looked around at his teammate. Uh, not just looked around, screamed abuse at this teammate earning about a hundredth of what Robbie Keener is. <laughs> I always find that a strange dynamic. You're better
3: than that. Maybe he said that after. He went up to him afterwards and said, look, you're better than that.
1: David Goff is one of the GAA's elite panel of referees. He's been in charge of league finals, an under-21 All-Ireland final. On Saturday, he took charge of Dublin against Tyrone in the league at Croke Park. As an openly gay man, he planned to ref the game wearing a gay pride rainbow wristband until the GA told him this wasn't going to happen. Delighted to have David on the show. Now, David, it's been a busy sort of a weekend for you over the last couple of days. What sort of reaction have you had?
4: Um, The reaction has been very positive, Um, from family to um, school, to the whole school community. um, Messages of support have been filtering in all morning, from uh, parents via email, text messages, and friends from all around the world who've who've, uh, heard the story and seen it online. So The reaction has been really, really positive, and I'm very happy with the reaction.
1: Did you have any reservations about actually going public with it?
4: No, I didn't. Not at all. I mean, I've been out for a number of years and it was not an issue um, for me and what was supposed to be a very small gesture on my part actually turned into something that I wasn't expecting. Um, it got a lot of media coverage that I never thought it was ever going to get um, but it was never a big deal for me to make this, make this public knowledge.
1: Well, can you maybe take us through it then? You, you describe what you wanted to make. It's just a, just a small, simple gesture. You wanted to wear the, the Gay Pride, the rainbow wristband on the pitch on Saturday night. Uh, can you tell us why you wanted to wear it?
4: Yeah, I suppose I just wanted to raise awareness for um, homophobia in sport and um, to bring some uh, light as well to the, the marriage equality referendum, um, which is coming up in May, and also to show young people around the country that it's it's quite acceptable um, to be gay and that there's nothing wrong with it and that, you know, you can achieve all your goals, your dreams, your aspirations, irrespective of your sexual orientation, you know, because there are a lot of young people out there Who are afraid to come out, and there's a lot within the GA itself. And um, I was just trying to, you know, show them that it's okay, and um, that the country is moving forward, and uh, that we're in a good place at the moment.
1: You say the GA have overanalyzed that. Then what? What exactly did the GA say to you when you revealed your plan?
4: Yeah, I spoke to to them on uh, um, Friday at midday, and 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 they were very supportive of it, and uh, they didn't see an issue with it. but I suppose as, 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 as the message got around inside in Croke Park, um, different people um, saw, um, <clears throat> saw issues with it. And uh, it resulted in a phone call on Saturday morning from, from Croke Park to say that they, they couldn't allow me um, to wear it because they were an apolitical association and that I couldn't use um, my standing within the association or the platform of Croke Park to promote um, the marriage equality uh, side of 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 what I was trying to do, and I, I completely understood the decision, and there was no argument on the phone call when I spoke to Patrick Doherty, um, the national um, referees, uh, the head of, of the referees. It was a very friendly chat, and I said, Patrick, if this is not what you want me to do, that's fine. There's no problem. Um, if I don't have permission, that's fine. It won't be worn.
1: OK, because the quotes that I read indicated that you were quite dismayed by the decision, that it really disappointed you, but you're saying now that you actually accepted it?
4: No, yeah, there would be a difference with accepting the decision and having personal feelings about it. Of course, I was always going to have uh, to accept a decision. I mean, I still want to referee and volunteer for the association, but I was disappointed and dismayed that they would give me support at first, but by the time it travelled through different corridors of power within the GA, that they were pulling their support on this.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because they said it's a black and white issue that the association is apolitical. Mm-hmm. And as you say, essentially what you've said there is, is what their public message is too. But it, in a way, it doesn't sound like it's too black and white if, if there were mixed messages coming to you over the course of the day.
4: Yes, yeah, and I suppose um, the mixed messages were, I suppose, um, individuals uh, within the association giving me their support and saying, yes, this will be fine and there's no issue with this. But then when they looked at association guidelines, um, you know, they, they had to take a different stance on it.
1: I, I guess the for, for any sports organisation, I think, I think people are always worried, uh, any big organization at all, really, about setting any sort of precedent. And I don't know, maybe they might feel, if what if a referee next week decides he wants to wear a T-shirt saying vote no to same-sex marriage? That, uh, w- from the point of view of the GEA, maybe they're, they're concerned, um, and I'm, maybe I'm putting words in their mouth here, but that, that could be a concern for them that, okay, this is a, a, standalone, um, a standalone gesture by you, but that maybe it could, lead to, it could lead to a situation where they can't refuse somebody else who wants to take a different view.
4: Absolutely, and I, and I appreciate that, and it would be a very valid concern. And it wouldn't only um, lie with referees, it could lie with managers and players who might want to make statements, um, and they just can't be seen to allow uh, um, players to do that, or managers or, or, or referees, and that's fine. Um, I suppose the issue with the referendum outstanding, um, they they also couldn't allow me w- w- with the referendum uh, coming up, but uh, I take it that if the referendum was not coming up, and um, they would have no issue with with any armband that I I choose to wear.
1: That was a key point as far as you were concerned with what they said to you that because once the referendum was called, it's uh, it then becomes a political issue as opposed to simply a statement of your own uh, of your own views.
4: Yes, yeah, and I understood that, and it, it, you know, it was it was partly for a, a call for a yes vote, but also, as I said, to highlight the issue of of homophobia in sport, and also to give courage to younger people around the country and to people my own age who might not feel comfortable in coming out at home and in their GA clubs. And actually, I, I received a very lovely message from my own. Team at home in Slane in County Mead supporting me and they said they'd be willing to wear any armband on any, on any day for, uh, on any match in support of me and, you know, the GA club at home have been absolutely fantastic as has has the community. So it's
1: all been very positive. Was that, was, were you able, to, in a position to explain that to the GA, that, look, OK, I know that a part of it is, is political, if you want to use that phrase, in the sense that there is a referendum going on. But as you've explained very eloquently here, David, a lot of it is personal to you and, and also personal to other gay members, particularly maybe gay members of the association who are concerned about coming out or whatever it might be. That, uh, did, were you in a position to actually convey that, that part of your message to the I GA? Did they, did they listen to that, if so?
4: I did. I did convey, convey that to, to Patrick um, and to Alan Milton um, on Friday night. Um, but and they seemed to appreciate that. But the, the whole gesture came undone, I suppose, around the, the political um, side of things with the, with the referendum. And they did take my points on board. And they spoke very nicely to me. And there was, as I said, there was no arguing. Um, so I did get my point across but they were just unwilling to, to move on it and, and I and I totally understand and accept the decision.
1: Do you wish you'd just warn it now rather than flagging it in advance?
4: No, uh, absolutely not. Um, I respect the GA and I respect their stance on it. I've been a member of the association for a very long time and would continue to be and um, they're going to have policies and procedures and a number of things that I wouldn't be privy to, as such as, as as that this weekend. And they have to stand by, 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 by the procedures and policies. That's what they're there for. No different than, than us having procedures or policies in the school. Um, I just wasn't aware of it. In, in advance, but I'm happy that I made contact with them and let them know in advance David, that I was I was willing to do it.
1: You've been uh, openly gay for uh, a few years now, so I guess players involved, certainly in Mead where where you referee, where you're from, would be would be aware of it. Has it had, had any impact at all on your life as a referee? Have has there been any negative consequences of, uh, at all of you coming out?
4: No, there never has been. It's never reared its head in any of the matches, and um, the players in Mead are very respectful. And um, not only the inter-county players, but also the club players. I mean, I played a good level of football in mead from when I was 16 up until I stopped playing when refereeing started to take over. So most of the players would know me quite well, and um, they would have known um, about me coming out. It, 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 I never hid it, and um, it was public knowledge. And the, I've never actually been <clears throat> um, been affected by homophobic abuse on, on the field at all.
1: Great. Well, listen, it's uh, been absolutely brilliant talking to you today, David. I really appreciate you taking the call and chatting to us about that. Uh, Thank you so much.
4: Thanks very much, lad.
1: Yeah, really interesting there from David. Very uh, conciliatory attitude attitude towards the GAA. I guess he's being totally respectful of their reasoning. Uh, uh, As a referee, I guess he, he can maybe see the the merits in going by the book and doing things the right way, but he's also outlined his personal grievances there, his personal disappointment with the the decision that's been made. It was interesting when I asked him there, would he have preferred to have just gone ahead and done it, just you know, do it and then worry about the consequences afterwards? He was very much saying, no, that's not that's not the way it's done, and m- maybe mm-hmm. a, a player even more so than the referee might feel they have a freer reign to just go and do something yeah. like that.
6: Well, I, I suppose if you're the referee, you're going out there as the Representative of the GA and of the 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 rule book, effectively of the you're the rule book of the GA made flesh on the on the pitch. So I suppose there's a different mindset at play there to a player who says, right, well, it's my own personal choice to be here. I if if I want to do this let someone try and stop me, you know? But maybe it's, it's something in a referee's mindset that I'm always going to check the rule <laughs> check the rule
3: first and, and make a decision on the back of that. Do you
1: buy the GAA's argument that they're apolitical, therefore you can't wear a wristband like that? Yeah.
3: Well, uh, the GAA, I suppose, are saying they're not political anymore. Um, I mean, the, the GAA has been one of... The the most political of sporting organizations I would say in the world I, I say <laughs> so if,
6: if there's a sporting organization more closely tied to politics than the GA I mean I sw- in the past, I mean they, I think that a lot of the overtly political stuff in their rule book has been taken out in the last 15 years or 20 years.
3: yeah uh, that said, a lot of the times if you want to actually play a, uh, play a match in the GAA, you'll be doing so in a stadium named after an Irish patriot, or maybe a bishop. Uh, They do tend to be individuals drawn from a certain tradition in Irish life. I'm not aware of too many exceptions to that rule. You would know better than me, Karen. Are there any big exceptions? To that sort of a real, do- is there a Kitchener Park or or <laughs> something along those lines anywhere in the GAA? Because, that, I mean, that is a, that's, names are, are political. I mean, you, you see it often in countries that go through political change, the names of the, the place names all suddenly start getting changed. You know, St- uh, Stalingrad became Volgograd. They apparently now want to make it Stalingrad again. Uh, in South Africa, this was—I remember when I was in South Africa. This was a big thing that was going on there at the time. Pretoria, um, the the capital, is named after Andreas Pretorius, who, let's say, was from one of one one specific strand of South African life, one of the traditions. And uh, it was felt at the time that uh, a better name for Pretoria in, for the 21st century would be Chwane, which was felt to be more representative of. Let's say more of the traditions right in south african life uh and whether that was going to happen you know was that was a a hot political issue, you know so um in this sense i mean the g- the g a a is saying it doesn't want its match to become a uh doesn't want its its games to become a kind of a stage for people to trot out their political views specifically the g a
1: uh, well certainly this is the, what david feels specifically the g a has an issue with this act because. Act, you know, it's where it's just a guy wearing a wristband, but uh, th- with this gesture, because they because there has a, a referendum has been called, so they feel it's a current political debate. Uh, it's, it, it seems like they wouldn't have had a problem with the if it's a two part uh, reason for David, as it seems to be, wanted to wear the wristband. They don't seem to have a problem with one part, uh, which is him just offering support to to gay people within the association and, and elsewhere. But they do have a problem with him offering overt political support for one side of a current referendum.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, who um, you know, I, I don't know what the GAA's r- reasoning really is. I mean, if if
1: well,
6: take it as well that that's the reasoning.
3: Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, I can actually empathise with that. I mean, you know, again, someone comes up. You know, there are all kinds of. I'm sure people hold all kinds of political views. You don't necessarily want them being uh,
6: next week. A referee warms up uh, with the t-shirt saying, "Enough is enough." We'd no vote, to, vote no uh, to, uh, to, to, marriage, yeah. to the marriage referendum. Yeah, I mean,
3: <laughs> I mean the the argument is that I mean the, the the kind of the liberal argument would be okay. Well, let people do that. Let people express their and argue views. both sides of it
1: via. Yeah, well, You speech. know,
3: and, and people will people will judge. People will make up their own minds. And the GEA is not necessarily implicated. Um, the the, the, the GEA is not responsible for the political views that people choose to. To express, you know, uh, I mean, this would be related to the kind of argument that say, you know, uh, you know, the way footballers are always getting in trouble now for writing uh, silly or nasty things on Twitter. Well, why? You know, just let them say it. And then, you know, if they they are judged harshly in the sort of court of public opinion, you know, then they can deal with the consequences themselves. Why does the FA need to get involved in that? This would be kind of related to that. I mean, I can see why the GAA would say, no, you know, we don't want anything to But, you know, it does... It does, When you do look at the history of the GAA, this ap- apolitical attitude that they're talking about having now is evidently quite a recent development. Not necessarily a bad one, but quite a recent one. Coming up in the Irish Times Second Captains Football Podcast.
0: That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Yeah, you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You well, don't know what
3: you're
1: talking about. What did you want
4: to I'd like to stay alive for six I'd say
3: it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm
4: down Swanfield and we'll see them up we? what you doing down here. You're showing me, man.
3: Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that great a weekend of football, though, and I have to say. The match of day two is reduced to Liverpool versus Blackburn. Extended highlights. Uh, of a nil-nil, uh, a nil-nil draw <laughs> between Liverpool and Blackburn. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great. So we're not going to talk about English football at all. Gone. We're going to cast the net a little wider than that. And talk a little bit about doping. I know we've been talking about doping today. Um, German football always seems to have <laughs> has quite a history of, of uh, doping chat. Mm. Uh, much more so than in other countries. Is this because uh, it went on more there or goes on more in German football? Or is it simply because they're more prepared to talk about embarrassing things that have happened in the past. We're going to talk a little bit about that and we'll we'll talk also about the rise of, of Barcelona. Last are, word. We're in great form at the moment. Sounds good.
1: Last word on this podcast goes to Mark English or certainly about Mark English. Goes to me about Mark English if you know what I'm talking about there because I was hugely impressed by him yesterday winning another major championship medal European indoor silver Adish McSweeney was part of the TV I was quite struck actually it was Edish McSweeney Jerry Kiernan and David Gillick and they were all so effusive in their praise of him they really feel that this guy could go a hell of a long way. He's already on the way, but that the World Championships, the, the next World Championships in a few months, might be a little bit early to make a massive impact. But that he's he's on the right track and his ability. I noticed it myself when he did the post-race interview. and We talked about the boxing Murph uh, a couple of weeks ago. How uh, Carl Frampton and Scott Quigg, yeah, 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 immediately finishes a fight and straight away has to be clear-headed enough to promote his next fight. It's different in athletics, but what I was struck by was English, how clear-headed he was in his analysis of the race, he literally talked about the exactly what he knew other people were going to do or thought they might do, then how he adapted when one person makes a break, then his mindset going into the last 100 metres, all these different factors were all going through his head and he was able to explain them as a lot of sports people can't do he was actually able to explain what was going on in his head Alex McSweeney made reference to that, that his racing intelligence has come on a lot and is up there with the best of them, so good luck to Mark English over the next little while, we're going to wrap things up on this podcast, we'll chat to you for the football a little later, thanks very much for listening,
3: thank you Ken. Thank you Owen Thank you Karen. Thanks Ciaran Thanks Owen And
1: I'm, I'm
6: glad that you didn't make
1: a big deal About
6: choosing me or Ken As you often do For the thank yous at the end I often feel like I'm on judgement Right up to the very end But on this occasion It was just an off the cuff remark so well, I, I did go for, for Ken that. first though You well, will that's know That's fine as I went no, for It's Ken absolutely first. fine not, not, not a problem for me Owen
1: We'll chat to you again Take care What's <laughs> that? That's
2: the second time it's gone off they never go
3: home, they never go home, they never go
2: home, those those
3: those boys.